Good morning, GYC. Good morning. It's good to see so many of you out here this morning. As the saying goes, the early bird gets the worm. And I think this morning, if you were a bird, you would enjoy worms, but obviously you're not birds, so we've got more than worms for you this morning. And I think you will be blessed and challenged uh, by Pastor Conway's message. I was thinking and reading some in Habakkuk this morning. And Habakkuk is a fascinating book because Habakkuk the prophet goes before God with some questions. He says, God, I see so much evil in this world. The wicked are prospering. The righteous are perishing. What's going on? I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. I'm confused. And so Habakkuk and God wrestle back and forth with these questions, trying to understand, trying to make sense of the tragedy and confusion that Habakkuk sees in the world around him. And finally, in the last chapter of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 17, he concludes on this triumphant note. Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 17, Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me to tread in high places." Even when things weren't going right, Habakkuk could still rejoice in the God of his salvation. And so this morning, I hope that no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what issues we're struggling with in GYC, especially with Alistair, we can rejoice in the God of our salvation, no matter what the outcome is. This morning, our speaker will be Pastor Stephen Conway. He's the pastor at the Michigan Campus Hope Campus Ministry on the university, the campus of the University of Michigan. He's a godly man. He loves young people. He uh, has two children of his own. And uh, he, I know he is looking forward to sharing with you this morning. Expect to be blessed. Amen? Alana Smith will be doing our opening prayer. And after that, the next voice you will hear will be that of Pastor Conway's. If you would mind, please bow your heads as we pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for giving us another day of life today. And Father, I just um, pray that you will uh, send your Holy Spirit to be here to guide our minds and to bring us closer to you. And especially, Father, this morning, I pray that you'll be with uh, Pastor Conway as he brings us your message. And um, I thank you, Father, and I pray this in your name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you out. You're the brave ones who uh, sacrificed to come out this morning, and uh, I'm glad to see your faces. Why don't you smile for me? Amen. Then we'll know you're happy to be here and your roommate didn't force you to get up. (laughs) Uh, Let's bow our heads for another word of prayer. I just need that for myself. Loving Father, thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to be here. We ask that you would rain down your spirit upon us, open our hearts and our minds, and I pray that you would use these lips to be able to convey the message you would have for your people in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I really don't watch much television, but uh, there's a commercial that I only saw one time And it simply just captured my mind. So I searched it up on, you know, the internet. I wanted to watch this commercial again. And I found that it was a Volkswagen commercial. And in this Volkswagen commercial, uh, there's this couple and they're riding down the street in the Volkswagen Passat. And uh, as they're riding down, they encounter a man who has a huge megaphone and he's hanging out of 
the window of an extremely expensive automobile and he's saying over and over because my daddy didn't hug me because my daddy didn't hug me and the people in the car look at each other and they keep riding and then they come across a blonde young woman and she's hanging out of a red convertible automobile sports car and she also has a megaphone and she's screaming because the more guys look at me the more I love myself the more guys look at me the more I love myself and then they continue to drive and they come by another man who's hanging out of the window of another expensive automobile because I make more money than you because I make more money than you and then finally they roll up on this gentleman who's seated in an extremely fancy sports car and he's hanging out with a megaphone and he says to make up for all of my insecurities. To make up for all of my insecurities. Now, I don't know who the creator of this commercial was, but whoever the creator was, I think that they captured something uh, about the psychological process that goes on in our minds. I read one time in a book, and I apologize, I can't tell you what the book's title is, but I read that almost 65 to 70 percent of the things that we do, we don't do those things consciously, but in fact, we do them subconsciously. You got up this morning and you made a selection as to what you would wear or you packed your suitcase thinking about what things you would wear when you came to GYC. And most of the decisions that you made were based on subconscious things that were going on in your mind. What an amazing reality. We as people do so much in order to impress those around us. So much to make up for the insecurities in our lives. As I was thinking this thing over, I asked myself the question, I wonder, did Jesus have this problem? Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of John chapter 1. John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, verse 35, John chapter 1, verse 35, the Bible says, Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following and saith unto them, what seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? Here these two gentlemen are and they have been disciples of John. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene and John points to Christ and says, here is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And as their eyes focus on Christ, they see him walking and they want to follow Jesus. So they begin to walk behind Christ. And Jesus turns around, you know, when you can sense someone is following you. Jesus turns around and says, what do you want? What an amazing uh, introduction to the Savior of the world. What do you want? What are you looking for? They say, uh, 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 Master, uh, tell us where you live. That's probably all they could muster. And so the Bible says that Jesus responds and says, come and see. Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And if you read the rest of the account, you will find that they were so impressed as a result of spending time with Jesus Christ in his home. They were so impressed that they went out and began to share the message of the arriving or the arrival rather of the savior of mankind. Let me ask you this question. Can someone spend time in your presence with you and your home and be so impressed just by looking at the place where you live that their lives are transformed? Jesus didn't break down the prophecies. Jesus didn't give them a Bible study on how he was the Messiah. He didn't explain any of those things. He simply gave an invitation to intimacy. Come, be close to me and you will see. And these disciples' lives were transformed. Jesus had a habit of doing things that kind of threw people for a twist. There Jesus gives the invitation to intimacy. But I want you to take a look with me in John chapter 8. At another example of something that Jesus does. If Jesus wasn't secure in terms of who he was, would he have been able to offer this invitation? Would he have been able to ask someone to come close to him?
get to know me. Sit where I have sat. Eat with me. In John chapter 8, beginning with verse 1, the Bible says, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, Jesus stoops down and begins to write in the sand. And rocks begin to drop. And from the eldest to the youngest... All of those who have accosted this young woman begin to leave. Now remember at the very beginning in John chapter 8, in the first verses, we are told that Jesus was in the synagogue. And what was he doing? Jesus was teaching. Jesus was expounding on the scriptures. So after this incident takes place with the woman and Jesus speaks to her and says, where are those your accusers? And she, she rises up and she says, no man, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Now, everyone who's there at the church service is scratching their heads by now. They've never experienced a church service like this, possibly, and they've never heard someone say the things that Jesus has said. They've never seen someone treat people the way that Jesus has treated them. And so they're wondering, what type of person is this? Who exactly is this man? Listen to how Jesus answers in John chapter 8, verse 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, now he's continuing with his message i am what does he say i am the light of the world he that followeth me shall not walk in darkness but shall have the light of life in effect what jesus says is i know why you're scratching your heads you're wondering how could i say these things how can i do these things let me give you a simple explanation because i am the light of the world look at john chapter 9 with me in John chapter 9, beginning with verse 1, the Bible says, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was, which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. Uh, in John chapter 8, as a postlude to what Christ had done in forgiving this woman who was taken in adultery. Now here in John chapter 9, as a prelude to what Jesus does in opening the eyes of this blind man. Listen to what he says in verse 5. As long as I am in the world... I am. What did he say? I am the light of the world. In effect, again, Jesus says, the reason why I am able to do what I'm getting ready to do is because of who I am. I am. I am. I am. Jesus was something, wasn't he? One might be tempted to believe that this was conceit. Maybe Jesus had a big head. No, 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 no. Jesus didn't have a big head. Jesus was secure in his identity. It was beautifully pointed out to us last night that Jesus heard the words of his father from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But let me share something with you this morning. Jesus would have never showed up on the banks of the Jordan River had he not first been affirmed in his father's word about his identity. Did you hear what I said? Jesus found who he was from studying the word of God. His identity was taken right from the word of God. And if Jesus had not seen that, he would have never showed up on the banks of Jordan and spoke to the Baptist like he did and said, suffer it to be so to fulfill all righteousness. Have you found your identity? In God's word. Do you know who you are? Not because of the car you drive. Not because of the expensive clothing that you have on this morning. Not because of the amount of zeros behind several numbers in your bank account. Not because of the family name that you bear. Do you know who you are based on God's word? 
Jesus did. Jesus did. Turn with me, as you will, in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 4. And in Matthew, chapter 4, we go back to this experience where Jesus has been baptized and he has led of the Spirit up into the wilderness. And Jesus fasts for 40 days. He is now emaciated with hunger. He has been fasting and praying for such a very long time that his very countenance is changed. Now, many of us, many of us have fasted before, right? How many of you have fasted? Let me see your hands. Yeah, a lot of us have fasted before. But very few of us have fasted so much, very few of us have fasted so much that when our very family members look at us, they can no longer recognize us. Jesus was in a serious fast. He was weakened, emaciated by this fast. And as a result, the devil comes to take a shot at Jesus when he's at his very weakest. Now, if you were the devil and you had an opportunity to lay Jesus out on his back and you had a bag of tricks, numbers one through ten, would you choose number one, which was the weakest, or would you choose number ten, which was the strongest? You would choose number 10. If you choose the weakest one, this is your only shot. Maybe you'll fail. Satan says, listen, I've got one shot. I'm going to use my very best weapon. So he reaches into his bag of tricks. And he comes out with what we read in Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 3. And when the tempter came to him, he said, if thou be the son of God. You don't even need to read what the rest is. That was his first swing. Listen to his second swing in verse six and saith unto him, if thou be the son of God, you don't even need to read what the rest says. Satan's best attempt at getting Jesus to forfeit his destiny was to cause Christ to doubt his identity. And let me tell you something, friends of God, it didn't just take place here in the wilderness of temptation. You don't believe me? I love it when you don't believe me. Because then I get the opportunity to show you. Right? Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 13. Same book, different chapter. In Matthew chapter 13, Satan caught Jesus when he was weakened and when he was emaciated with hunger. But this was not the only time in Jesus' life that Satan challenged Jesus' identity. In Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 53, the Bible says, And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when, when he was coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue. Insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom? And these mighty works. Is not this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? And they were offended at him. Can you imagine it? Jesus goes back to his hometown and he's preaching and teaching and the people's hearts apparently are being warmed. But one saint whispers to another and says, hey, wait a minute. He looks familiar, doesn't he? Yeah, the way he speaks, it sounds, sounds very familiar. Hey, wait a minute. That's Jesus. What? Jesus? Yes, that's him. Man, oh man. Can you believe that Jesus, where did he get the power to do this? Where did he learn? I mean, he never went to school. Did he? No, he didn't. How is Jesus doing and saying the things that he's doing? And then I imagine someone interrupted his speech and says, hey, wait a minute, aren't you Jesus? And he says, yes, I am he. Hey, don't we know your mom, Mary, right? Yes, Mary, that is my mother. Jesus, let me ask you a question. Jesus, who's your daddy? Come on, tell us, Jesus. You couldn't tell us when you were a little boy. Maybe now that you're a grown man, maybe you've got some more insight or information on this thing. Jesus, who is your daddy? Don't give us this virgin birth stuff anymore. We know about you. We know your mom. We know your sisters. We know your brothers. Your whole family is no good. And neither are you, Jesus. 
We don't even have to listen to you. The Bible says they were offended at Jesus. Can you imagine the people who have watched you grow up, the people who have seen you mature from a little boy or a little girl into a grown man or a grown woman, and those very people challenge who you are? Turn with me to John chapter 7. It would have been enough if Jesus only had to deal with the attacks of Satan and if Jesus only had to deal with the ridicule of those who he had grown up amongst. But in John chapter 7, beginning with verse 2, listen to what the Bible says. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles, John chapter 7, verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren, this is Jesus' family, his brothers, therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. Listen to this. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. Implication? Jesus, you're really not doing the things that people say you're doing. You're really not that important, Jesus, because if you were, you would be behaving different. Jesus was attacked by Satan. Jesus was attacked by the people in his community. And Jesus was doubted even by his own family members. Doesn't stop there. Turn with me back to the book of Matthew, chapter 27. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 40, Jesus is hanging on the cross. Matthew chapter 27, verse 40, he's hanging on the cross and saying, this are the, the, these are the people who are standing around the cross. Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. What did the next word say? If thou be. You see, I told you this was Satan's most potent weapon. He didn't give up in the desert. He used it every step of Jesus' life. And when Jesus is breathing out his very last breath, hanging on Calvary, Satan is there inspiring men to ask the question or to insinuate doubt if you are the son of God. And in verse 42, if you are the king of the Jews, come down, come down. Jesus had some serious stuff to deal with. Jesus had some really, really serious stuff to deal with. In fact, you know, I was reading through the Gospels the other day, and I was looking, uh, I was looking for people who affirm Jesus. <laughs> you know what I found? One of the only groups to affirm Jesus' identity were people who were possessed by demons. So, so here Jesus comes, right? And some demon-possessed guys run up to him. We know who you are. You're Jesus. You are the Son of God. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. And Jesus says, be quiet. And I always wonder, why on earth would Jesus tell these people to be quiet? I mean, weren't they testifying to who he was? Jesus, in effect, is saying, I don't need that type of affirmation. Satan was trying to drive Jesus out of his mind. Insane. Jesus, your church members don't believe in you. Jesus, the pastors and religious leaders don't believe in you. Jesus, your own family members don't believe in you. Jesus, matter of fact, the only people who are affirming you are out of their minds. Jesus, maybe you're out of your mind. Maybe you're not really who you think you are. This was a serious thing. Now you might say to yourself, okay, Pastor Conway, yeah, Jesus had to deal with who he was and his identity. That's serious stuff. Wow. Amen. But how does that affect me? <laughs> Thank you for asking. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. What book did I say? The book of Acts, chapter 9. I'm going to share with you now how this challenge that Jesus faced is a very real challenge for each and every one of us. And I'm going to share two ways. In Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, a man named Saul is on his way to Damascus. You all remember the story, right? He's got letters from the chief priest and he's going to go there and he's going to persecute the Christians. He's going to throw some folks in jail. And as he's on his way, riding on his horse, 
he meets Jesus. He's blinded by the light that comes from Christ. And then he is helped up into the house of a man who's a Christian. Then God pays a visit. How many of you would like God to pay a visit to you? Let me see your hands. How many of you would like to hear the voice of God speaking directly to you? Let me, let me see your hands. Oh, amen. How sweet that would be. Well, let me show you what you would do if you heard God's voice speaking to you. <laughs> in Acts chapter 9, the Bible says in verse 10, and there was a certain disciple. He was a follower of Jesus at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. Here it is. God is speaking for the very first time in my life. His voice is audible. Oh, Lord, it's in surround sound. I hear it, and it sounds great. Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight. Straight Street. Oh, yeah, I know exactly where that is, Lord. And inquire in the house of Judas. Judas. Oh, he and I served on the deacon board together. Oh, yeah, he's a good man. Godly man. Inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. Excuse me? You, you said what now? He has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. You, Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Now, you said you wanted to hear God speak to you. You said you did. But listen to what Ananias' response is to God. Verse 13, then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man. God, I know you want me to go to the house of Judas. Judas is a good man, but I cannot for the life of me explain what Saul of Tarsus will be doing in the house of such a good man. Don't you know, Lord, that he's here to persecute and kill your people? Hey, uh, God, let me let you in on something. I've got good sources. Got good sources about who this guy is. He's not a good character, God. He's not someone that you want rubbing shoulders with your people. Ananias been waiting to hear the voice of God all of his life. And when God's voice speaks, he starts arguing with God. You don't know who you're sending me to. You must have, uh, your angels must have misinformed you as though that could happen. Verse 14, he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all. But the Lord, verse 15, said unto him, go thy way. In other words, Ananias, Get up and go your way, for he is. Oh, I like that. I like that. Ananias had from good sources, church people I would have you know, he had from good sources that this guy Saul was a no good murderer. But Jesus speaks to Ananias and says, he is. Oh, beloved, only God knows who you are. Only God knows who you are. And it doesn't matter what the church members think about you. It doesn't matter what your reputation has been. It doesn't matter what people have called you or have called me in our lives. God knows who we are. And he says, Ananias, arise, get up and go your way. For he is a chosen vessel unto me. Not only does God have our identity wrapped securely in his hand, but God also has our mission. Ananias, stop complaining. How many people have we as church members run down based on what we've heard? How many people with abilities and gifts that God could have used to the furtherance of his cause have we pushed aside because of what we've heard? That's reason number one why people don't know who they are. It's because of other people around them. Why people in the church don't even know who they are. Because of other church members. Oh. And now I've got to go to this one. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 1. What book did I say? Jeremiah chapter 1. And in Jeremiah chapter 1, we find another awesome event. Again, God chooses to come and speak to one of his own. Verse 4, the Bible says, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. 
This is God again speaking to a young man. And he says, I have not only known you, but I have also created a blueprint for your life. Listen to this young man's response. Then said I, ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak for I am. Jeremiah, God just told you who you were. Yet here Jeremiah is, and he's getting ready to argue the point with God. Lord, you don't know who, who I am. You've got the wrong man. Go call somebody else. I can't do it. It doesn't matter what you said. I know who I am, and I'm only a child. I don't have many abilities. I don't have many gifts. I've never done this, and I've never done that. And he's running down the list to God, telling God who he is when God has already told him who he is. How many of us are doing the very same thing? God comes to us and tells us to speak to a coworker or a fellow student. And we run down a whole list of reasons why we can't do it. And they normally all center around us. I can't speak, Lord. I can't give a Bible study, Lord. I don't understand this. And I, 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 I am, Lord, or I am not. But the Lord said unto me, I'm so glad that God listens to our foolishness and doesn't just, you know, put up a hand and just cause us to stop speaking or lose our breath or something like that. I'm so glad that God listens and then he responds. But the Lord said unto me, say not, say not, say not, I am a child. For thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. God says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I know who you are. I know who you are. Why do you think I'm here, Jeremiah? I don't make mistakes. I don't have wrong addresses. I know exactly who you are, and I know exactly what you will do. Jeremiah, will you accept it? Will you accept it? Friends of mine, I believe the reasons that our lives do not have the same power that Jesus' life had. One reason, at least, is because we have not accepted what God says about us. We have not. We have not accepted what God has said about us. We can talk about a lot of wonderful things, be this and be that. But if the foundation has not been laid and an individual acceptance of what God says about you and what God says about me. Everything else sounds foolish. Think with me now, right? I've just signed up for the Adventist Frontier Missions. I'm going to go to Papua New Guinea, right? And I want to go to a tribe that doesn't speak a language that anybody knows. And I want to go up there and I want to take the gospel there. But a week before my flight leaves... I've already been trained and I've gone through the preparation process. A week before my flight leaves, I'm in a terrible accident. And as a result of this car accident, I've totally lost my memory. There I am in the hospital, wondering who I am and how I got there. And all of a sudden, a representative from AFM comes into the room, says, Hello, Stephen Conway. That's you, right? And I look around and I see the name. There I say, Yes, I, I guess that's me. Well, listen. You signed up to be a missionary to Papua New Guinea. I, I did? Yes, you did. And your flight leaves in about four days. I just came by to give you all of the paperwork and let you know that we're going to be praying for you and you're going to have a wonderful time there in Papua New Guinea. I, I'm saying, what? I'm going where? What is AFM? Who are you? I've never even seen you. I don't know who you are. And I don't know what this mission stuff is about. In fact, I don't even know who I am. It would be foolish, yea, it would be senseless to ask someone who doesn't know who they are to do mission work. Yet that's what we do. We're going to evangelize the world and we're going to send folks here and we're going to send folks there. And we're talking to a bunch of people who don't even know who they are. Laid up in the hospital, so to speak, and saying to themselves, who, what, I... It, I don't understand. Purpose 
is purposeless, <laughs> without identity and destiny. So it's not only important that we know ourselves, that's not an end in and of itself. God wants us to know who he says we are so that we can have a proper vision of our destiny and what drives identity and what drives destiny is purpose. In World War II, they had a cruel experiment. They took a group of uh, Jews who were in a concentration camp and they woke them up one morning and they said, listen, we want you to go over here to the east side of the camp and we want you to dig up this large pile of dirt. And so they did it and they went to bed at night. Their, their muscles ached and their bodies were exhausted. And the next morning, the Nazis woke them up and says, you know that pile of dirt you just moved? Yes, yes, we know. We, we asked you to move it from the east to the west and you did that. Now we want you to go to the west and move it back to the east. And they looked around at each other and they took their shovels and they went and they moved the dirt. Day after day, they did the very same thing from the east to the west, from the west to the east, back and forth, back and forth again and again until some of those who were there in those concentration camps ran and threw themselves on fences that were electrically charged. They saw no purpose in what they were doing and they desired death rather than a life without meaning, a life without purpose. And some of us would rather die than go knock on somebody's door. Some of us would rather die than attempt to give a Bible study. No identity, no destiny, no purpose. Okay, you got me. Well, how do I get these things? I already told you. Believe what God says about you. Let me share with you one example. This is one of my favorite portions in scripture. Psalm 139. Turn there with me in your Bible. Psalm 139, beginning with verse 1. Psalm 139, beginning with verse 1. O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain unto it. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me. And thy right hand shall hold me. And David is waxing eloquent about everything that God knows about him. And then he says, if I say surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both the light to thee. For thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works and that my soul knoweth right well. David is expounding on how deep God's knowledge of him is. And he's talking about experiences that a, a teenager or maybe even a grown man could have. And understanding God's knowledge. But then David is, is whammied with another thought. And he says to himself, your knowledge of me didn't just start when I came out of my mother's womb. It goes beyond being in my mother's womb. My substance was not hid from thee. Verse 15, when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book, all my members were written, were written, which in continuance were fashioned when as yet there were none of them. In other words, Lord, before I had fingernails, you knew that I would have long cuticles. Before I had nose hairs, you knew that they would grow so long that I needed to clip them sometimes. Before the bones in my fingers came together and the bones in my, my legs and my feet and in my toes, before any of them were connected, you knew how each and every one of them would be connected. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. How precious also are thy thoughts. Verse 17, unto me, O God, how great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. God's knowledge of us, ladies and gentlemen, did not begin when your little foot 
was placed on that card. And they put ink on it to identify who you were. God's knowledge of you and me didn't start there. God's knowledge goes much deeper. And since only God knows us that deep, it is an act of idolatry for us to seek our identity in any other person or in any other thing. You know, I have two children. I also have a wife. He didn't mention that, huh? <laughs> I also have a wife, too. Yes, I do. And I remember when my wife was giving birth to our first child, Israel. He's five years old. She was giving birth to our child, and I was just there snapping pictures like a madman. Didn't, was, you know, wasn't even conscious of the fact that, you know, no one would ever be able to see these pictures except for my wife and I. And I remember when they brought little Israel out and the nurses began to wipe him and, you know, we cut the umbilical cord. He was just screaming and crying like little babies do. Now, when my wife was pregnant, I used to sing to my son. So I started to sing one of his favorite songs. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. <clears throat> it didn't go like that. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. And all of a sudden, eh, eh. and for the first time, my son's eyes opened. And he looked to the left. He was blinking. He looked to the right. And he caught the voice and he said, that's the voice. That's the voice. Uh, that's the voice. No, he didn't say that. Didn't say that. He may have been thinking that, but he looked and he saw the voice that was there even when he was in his mother's womb. Psychologists have a term and it's called the looking glass self. What is it called? And this little psychological term simply means that an individual sees himself or herself as the most important person in their life sees them. Now, the most important people in our lives are usually our parents, as in the case of my son. When he heard my voice, it was a familiar voice to him because he had heard it before. Mine were the first hands to caress him and, and wipe all that stuff, nasty stuff off of his body. That was me. And then he was gently placed in the arms of his mother, but it doesn't matter whether we know our parents or we don't know our parents, they're still the most important figures in our lives. If we don't know them, we've got a lot of questions as to why we don't know them. And if we do know them, we've got a lot of questions as to why they did things the way they did things. But nonetheless, they are the most important figures in our lives. So we see ourselves as our parents see us. Ooh, ooh. That's not always a good thing. Because as godly as our parents may be, none of us have had perfect parents, not even Jesus. They do make mistakes. When they see a bad grade on the report card, their faces frown and all of a sudden our bodies shrivel up. But you know I love God because he's smart. Can you say that with me? Say God is smart. Oh, he is so much smarter than we are. So because God understands that parents are the most important because theirs uh, is the first voice and theirs are the first hands and the first caress and the first touch, Jesus says in John chapter 3, you must be born again. So that the first voice you hear is my voice. The first embrace or caress that you experience is from me. So that you will look into my face, because I'm the most important person in your life. You'll look into my face and you will find your value in me. In me. You know, my father has a hobby. <clears throat> and my father's hobby is... He uh, customizes and rebuilds cars. So he likes to photograph the process. 
So my dad has a 1966 Fastback Mustang that he's totally restored. It's fire orange red. It's got two white racing stripes down the middle. Boy, that baby can move too. Real nice. My son just loves it. And when my dad gets in it, he just revs up the engine and my son just goes ballistic, goes crazy. You know, I used to do the same thing too when I was his age. <laughs> so my dad restores these cars, but he takes pictures and he shows the process step by step. Now, when he restored this 66 Mustang, it was nothing but a shell. It was all rusted. There was nothing on the interior. There was no engine whatsoever. And he took it and meticulously, painstakingly, step by step, he restored it until it looked better than it was when it was first purchased. My dad has too many of these types of cars. And so he was being encouraged by an unnamed source to move some of them out of the garage and, and you know, stop taking up so much space. So he put his car, he put his car in, 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 in a newspaper because he wanted to sell it. And he named a price. And would you believe he didn't have any takers? He was kind of upset. He took the car out of the thing and he put it back in the garage. And, you know, he had his excuse to keep his, uh, his little toy. <laughs> well, I couldn't sell it. I tried. Then all of a sudden, he hadn't taken the for sale sign out. And a guy comes by and sees the car. He's also a collector. He opens the doors. He looks inside. He opens the hood. The engine is so clean, one could eat off of it if one chose to eat off engines. <laughs> and he says, I will give you $30,000 for this car. All of a sudden, my dad perked up a bit. <laughs> because someone had appreciated his work. He tried to sell it for a price. But he could not determine nor set the price. The price could only be determined by the individual who was willing to pay for it. In this case, it was $30,000. Friends of God, when God created man, when he formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul, heavenly intelligences did not yet understand what man was worth but at Calvary Jesus took the price tag on humanity and flipped it over for the entire universe to see and in effect said this is what they're worth this is what they're worth not in creation but in redemption the price of humanity was once and for all settled and realized. But would you believe that we still have not accepted it? How angels must weep when they watch us walking up and down the hallways and going to and fro. How they must weep when they say if only they knew who they were. If only they could understand the great price that was paid for each and every one, they would in fact understand that they are as precious as Christ. When you look in the mirror, do you see someone who is as precious as Christ? Or did you say, man, I got a pimple this morning. Did you say, oh Lord, I've got to go out and show this face again. Or did you look in the mirror and say, I am a blood-bought child of God? Before we talk about anything else, and we'll talk about some nice things this week, I want you to chew on this. You are as precious as Christ. That's the price that heaven paid for each and every one. How many of you want to accept that? Let me see your hands. Do you want to accept the price that have it? I mean, think about it. Ridiculous, wouldn't it be? For you to pay for something and then the person refuses to give it to you? Makes no sense. Makes no sense. How many of you want to say, Lord, today I no longer choose to find my identity in my family? Uh-oh. You didn't think I was going there, did you? Jesus couldn't find his identity in his family, remember? 
I no longer choose to find my identity solely in my church family. Because boy, oh boy, some church families are. Uh. And I no longer choose to find my identity in the testimony of those around me. But I choose to go here. I choose to find my identity the same place Jesus did in your word. Beloved, I challenge you, check out what God has to say about you. Go back and read it. I know we tend to think sometimes, oh, I know Jesus loves me this. I know that's the most profound text in all of the scripture. Ah, I've been there. Teach me about prophecy. No, before you understand prophecy, you need to get this. So do you want that this morning? Do you want to walk out of here holding up your heads saying, I am as precious as Christ because Jesus gave his life for me? Is that what you want to say? If it is, stand to your feet with me as we pray and ask the Lord to keep these thoughts fresh in our minds. Our Father in heaven, thank you, thank you, thank you. None of us of a truth can say that we deserve it. We know we don't. But it's because when you walked into the junkyard of the universe, you set your eyes on something that no one else wanted and you said, I want that. And when Satan at the checkout counter asked, uh, are you sure that's what you want? You affirmatively answered, yes, yes. And when he asked, are you sure you're willing to pay the price? You said, how much will it cost? And he said, it'll cost your life. And you said, I'll take it. I'll take them. I pray, Lord, that everything that we profess to believe would be centered in an understanding of the preciousness of each one of us as individuals in your eyes. I pray that our minds would never lose sight of the infinite price that was paid for every one of us. May we leave this place knowing we are as precious as Christ is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.